Be seated if you're already seated. Stay that way. And I want to bid you a very good morning. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. It's sincerely a delight and a joy to see all of you here on the second floor. I was just up on the third floor seeing what all was going on up there. Uh, down here on the second floor are apparently a lot more attractive people. Just throwing that out there. So congratulations. First floor, we got a lot of work to do, but there's grace for that too. And then there's those of you who are watching remotely who I'm sure are looking spectacular. Speaking of all of those things, I do want to welcome you. As Mike's already said, we don't think that it's an accident that you are here or that you're hearing all that's been transpiring thus far in our worship service. We believe that God and his sovereignty has divinely directed your steps that you would hear something, that you would be influenced by God's spirit, by God's word, and by God's people. Now, it's that little term, influence, that I want to talk about this morning because there's a lot of things that are going on in our world, and sometimes it's very helpful to spend a little bit of uh, effort and time exegeting the culture. What's going on in our world? So much tension, so much apparently increasing division between people groups and parties. What all is going on? There's several issues in play. But one of those most significant issues that we as a people, as a, as a species, are dealing with is this issue of influence. And it's sort of amplified exponentially by the re reality and the existence of social media, where it's all about influence. We've defined it this way before, but I want to define it again this morning. Influence. Influence is the power to change or affect someone or something. And so if you look at what's going on in our world, one way or another, some person or another, or this group or that, is trying to exert some level of influence to change or affect someone or something. That's really what constitutes the underpinnings, the undergirdings of our entire civilization and society these days. There's a lot of voices that seem to grow in volume and frequency, and they capitalize on what I call the FUD factor. These voices hook into everyone's pre-existing condition of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And this harkens way back to ancient of days in Genesis 3 when the serpent comes into the garden and capitalizes on the very first hook and snag of a human heart, which is FOMO. The fear of missing out. The serpent says, you know what? I think that God of yours is holding out on you. You've got it pretty great. There's no doubt. But... God doesn't want you to do that because he knows that you'll be like him and he's holding out on you. And so I want to play on that whole FOMO thing. And so what happens is we as a species, we begin to try to build our identity on something that we think will actually make us happy. What we want to say right at the outset is we're going to begin a brand new sermon series this morning is this, an identity built on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ will drive you to fear and then hate, always. And let me just say, depending on what social media stream you observe, depending on what news channel you watch, depending on what AM radio station you listen to, Harold, this is the problem. If you build your identity on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ, it will drive you to fear and then hate, always. That's the problem in our world. It's a sin 
problem. Do you see? Give you some quick examples. If your identity is built on wealth, I matter because I have resources, I have assets, I have riches, I have means. If your identity is built on wealth, you will hate and despise those who have less than you, and you will be envious of those with more. And there leaves no area for any sort of concern for anybody else. If your identity is built on success and strength, you will look on disdain on those who are weak or failing, as well as those who are stronger than you. Now, I'm probably going to catch just about all of you in one of these four examples. If your identity is built on your education, your intellect, your accomplishment, then you will look down on anyone less educated than you, and you'll always stretch your soul to try and be like somebody with more, always. And it will cause you to fear, and it will cause you to hate, always. If your identity the thing that is always true about you. If your identity is built on your nationality or your race, then you will revile anyone who isn't like you. You will see them as less than or perhaps even above you. And this is the way of the world left to its own devices and depravity. Now, there's all sorts of clever secular attempts to address this and to sort of resolve these issues, but the underlying issue is sin, and it is therefore beyond a human solution. It is a God-sized problem. What's needed, of course, is the gospel. We say this all the time. What's needed is people in this world who use their influence to proclaim the good news, that it is finished. And so that leads us, at long last, to our big idea for the morning, and it goes very simply like this. God gives influence to accomplish his idea, never ours. God gives influence to accomplish his idea. Most of us, all of us, I would dare say, in our default depravity, want more and more influence to accomplish our ideas. That's very godlike, which is the sin of humankind. No, God gives freely, by grace, influence to accomplish his idea. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the little book of Titus. Find the book of Hebrews, hang a Louis, you'll be there in no time. The little epistle of Titus. Now, as you're turning to the little book of Titus, I should tell you, Lord willing, we're going to be in this little epistle for the next five or six weeks. It's short, but it's jam-packed. It marvelously follows the trail of the message that the Apostle Paul so frequently and consistently conveys. And by that, I mean the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I don't mean that people get to decide whether or not they go to heaven when they die that's really not all that good news, quite honestly. No, the gospel is an awesome announcement. It's a great story. It's good news. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's a huge announcement of something absolutely awesome. And if we don't really get that, if we don't really receive and believe that, then we have a really hard time understanding the enormity of the things that the apostle Paul writes about, specifically this little book of Titus. Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. We're told in his resume in Philippians 3 that he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, studied at the feet of the top rabbi in Jerusalem named Gamaliel. He was a prodigy. He was a wonder kid. And Saul of Tarsus, like all other Jews, essentially viewed the world through this lens. There are two ages. There is the present age in which pretty much everything sucks. That's a theological term for those of you scoring at home. 
There is this age where we experience suffering and persecution and oppression and resistance and pain and misery and death and fear and all of those things. That's this age where foreign powers have come in if you're in Israel and they have occupied and oppressed us and they've taken our stuff and they've killed our children. They've dragged off our daughters, all kinds of horror. That's this age and that's just how this age operates. But, but there is the age as yet to come. And every Jew thought this way. There is the age as yet to come when everything will be set to rights, when justice and mercy will flow like a river, when Messiah will reign and rule, and he will set everything just as it is supposed to be. It will be perfect. And Paul's gospel says this, it's happening. It's happening now. See, if you think that it's just this thing that's going to happen one day when Messiah returns, you're missing the point. Paul's gospel says, oh, no. You see, he has come. He has ascended. But he's reaching back because the kingdom has already begun. And so he's reaching back through future history, you might say, to give us the blessing and the benefit and the presence of the kingdom even here and now. It's such good news they should write a gospel about it. Please do not ever distill or water down the gospel to simply mean you get to go to heaven one day when you die. Full stop, that's not biblical. It is that the kingdom has inaugurated and the king is reaching back and he is establishing it in human hearts and he is giving people influence to accomplish precisely that, his idea. That is the opening to the book of Titus. We'll read these three chapters of Titus as we go along these next five or six weeks. And what we're going to find is the series theme. It goes like this. Grace works, which I know will confuse and conflict a great many of you. That's on purpose, lest you fall drowsy. No, grace works. We receive grace. God gives influence to accomplish his idea. Grace has been given to us to the church, and it works. It does something. We have influence to accomplish his idea, which is to further establish the presence of the kingdom as he reaches back through space and time. Now then, I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to start by reading Titus chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 4. We'll unpack it, and then we'll very quickly hit verses 5 to 9. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Now, if you've spent any time at all around Bethel downtown, then you know that I have a fond affinity and an affection for the epistles of Paul. We just finished walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and so we're going to spend just a few weeks in Titus. But, but, but I can explain. People are like, well, well, what about Song of Solomon? What about Job? We'll get there. Fine. Right now we're doing Titus, and it's because I want to do Titus. And I will tell you transparently that the other four campuses are not doing Titus. I'm doing Titus. I love Titus. Paul got the gospel personally. I mean, he personally, individually, actually understood it, and it got all over him. And so he loved to give the gospel in some incredibly 
orderly and practical ways. You might have heard it said somewhere along your faith journey that you really can't understand the Bible unless you get into a Hebraic or a Hebrew or a Jewish mindset. Patently false. God is the greatest communicator that has ever been. And in his sovereignty, he chooses to reveal the New Testament in the common language of the culture at that time, which was Greek, Koine Greek, to a Jewish man. Now that's clever. And so it is a language that is historically wonderfully built on order and structure and its capacity to communicate and articulate clearly. Hence the book of Titus. Other than Romans, that little introduction there, verses 1 to 4, is the longest of Paul's introductions, and it's absolutely loaded. Remember that Paul, this guy who was born Saul of Tarsus, named for the first king of Israel, now had his name changed by Jesus to Pauli. It's a Latin derivative that means little. He's Shaul of Tarsus, named for the first king of Israel, tall, dark, and handsome. Now you're Pauli. Because God's going to give him all kinds of influence, but it's not going to look like an Instagram story. It's not going to look like a cool TikTok video. He'll not go viral till long after he's dead. This is the Apostle Paul. He calls himself doulos, a slave. You're translation might try to soften that, call it a bond servant or a servant. It's doulos. It generally has the idea of the galley slave and the slave ship that's not on the first level, not on the second level. He's on the third level of the slave ship, rowing and rowing until he gets beaten to death and then tossed off the side. Paul says, I am a doulos. I am a servant of God. Usually he'll say of Jesus Christ, but here he calls himself a servant of God and an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. This is very intentional language. Because Paul's saying that Jesus is not just a hero or a prophet. No, 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 no. He is Messiah. He is God. It is a very staunch declaration of deity and divinity. Why is Paul writing this letter? For the church. Now, permit me a slight rant here. And actually, you have no say in the matter. I'm going to rant no matter what. You might have heard it said before that the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself. And I get what people mean when they say that. They mean, hey, we want for the people of the church to stop navel-gazing and to care about people who are outside the church. Don't you care about all the dead and the dying, the lost? Outside? Yeah, yeah, I get that. But that's actually not a helpful expression because it's not biblical. The church absolutely exists for itself. Paul says, I am writing this for the elect. His apostolic call is for the elect, those who are eclectos, those who are the summoned out ones. Not just beckoned, not just wooed, not just invited, not just, hey buddy, come over here. That's not how Jesus works. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says, come, you say, okay. This eclectos is the summoned out ones. And Paul says, my apostolic call is for you. Now that's really interesting. They are the chosen saints, and yet there is still much setting in order that needs to occur, and that includes growth in the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that interesting? You don't become a Christian, join a church, and are simply suddenly fully baked. In fact, no, we're all half-baked. There's a whole lot of growth and development in the truth that all of us in the church still need. In other words, you and I will never go nor grow beyond the gospel. 
Because the gospel is saying that God's done it in Christ. He has inaugurated the kingdom that will one day set all things to rights. It will be marvelous and manifest. It literally will. But right now he's reaching back through time and future history to establish the saints with influence so that they can accomplish his idea. Now that's a really, really interesting way to live your life. There's a reason you and I don't instantly get raptured the moment we come to faith. No, we've been given influence to accomplish his idea. He says, I want you to grow in the knowledge of the truth. According to Paul, that happens when the people of the church are built up in their faith. The faith here, it's the, the, the whole content of the confession of Christianity. Jesus is alive. He is the Son of God. He ascended. He will come again. All of those things built principally and primarily on the confession that Jesus is alive, as well as our day-by-day, moment-by-moment, living our lives in trust of Christ. And when we increase in our knowledge of that truth, that produces in us godliness. And what the world needs is godliness. Yes, the world needs Jesus. He's done his bit and is doing his bit and can literally do no more than what he does. What the world needs now is people who are godly. But please don't misunderstand godliness. Please don't use a cinnamon that's something like mm, pious or legalistic or moral or uh, sort of a, a behavior manager. That is not what godliness is. Godliness is, oh, what do you call it? It's um, um, Jesus it's how Jesus lived his life as depicted in all four of our Gospels. What would that guy do? You ever read the Gospels and just go, man, that guy, that guy, that guy. I love that guy. I wish I was more like that guy. And he goes, man, I wish you were too. And I'm giving you my spirit to ever increasingly transform you into godliness so that you will be the walking around instance, in a sense, incarnation of Christ. You'll never be Christ. You don't need another one. But what this world needs is godliness. See, God gives influence to accomplish his idea. It's what Jesus' life looked like all the time. Well, verse 2. I know we're just in one verse. We're going to be here till 3. I'm kidding. We'll pick up speed. In hope of eternal life, our godliness occurs in the context of hope. We don't need to listen to the siren song of any other influence Students, young people, older folks, nothing else need beckon you because our hope is eternal life. And when we say hope, we do not mean wish. As in, gee golly, wouldn't that be nice if? No. Hope, biblically, is a confident expectation of something great in the future. Not maybe this will come to pass. Boy, wouldn't it be nice if it occurred? No, it is absolutely going to. It's the hope we have is that of the sun rising in the morning. I say this all the time. It is having Monday's news feed on Friday. No matter what is happening this Friday, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad this weekend's looking, uh, uh, I have Monday's news feed and it's gonna be awesome. That's hope. That is our hope is eternal life. It is certain there will never, ever, ever come a time when you and I are not fully alive. Did you know that? If that's true, and it is, then what else do you possibly have to grasp for? Now, that godliness is produced in a hope that says we have life everlasting and forever. Our certainty, our confidence is in eternal and everlasting life. 
God has done this. He's doing it and he will do it. Paul says that God cannot deny himself. God promised, now watch this, in eternity past. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get into some theological argument of this particular camp, of this particular camp, of Arminians and Calvins and all that. No, 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 no. Paul's point here is our confidence is rooted in the essence of God himself. What God is like is he's the kind of God that before you even existed, he promised you would have life everlasting. And for that to not come to pass would be tantamount to ungodding God. That cannot happen. That is our certainty, our confidence, and that produces in us godliness. God's promise cannot be done undone now or at any point in the future. That's good news. Your grace and forgiveness and life everlasting are absolutely guaranteed by the sovereignty of God himself. See, that's the gospel, and you're in. Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Polypreposition never, never likes periods. He just likes to keep bolting on prepositional phrases as long as he possibly can. Here's Paul's point here. It's such a good story that Paul says the point of his ministry is to preach this gospel and not just to unbelievers, although that's certainly part of it. His preaching is also giving the gospel to believers who have already received and believed because we never go beyond it. We always have the real and present desperation for the gospel to inhabit every aspect of our life. This is God's plan for communicating the gospel. The declaration, the preaching of the word. God could have used the three members of the Godhead Trinity to proclaim the gospel, and I feel like they would have been pretty good. And you wouldn't have missed a beat. Whenever it's the Father or the Son or the Spirit, them giving the gospel, you'd be like, yep, that's pretty clear. I get that. God could have used the Godhead. He didn't. He could have used angels to show up, ring your doorbell, and go, and just like blind you with their glory and say, if you died tonight, would you be smoking or non-smoking? He could have sent angels, but he didn't ever send angels. He get angels announcing the gospel the one time to some dirty sheep shepherds. You never see angels preaching the gospel again. You know what? No, God wants people who have received grace to declare grace. God gives influence to accomplish his idea. By the way, it's no accident. When Paul says Christ Jesus, our Savior, we don't, we're not super sure where Paul is when he writes this, but he's doing something very, very intentional. That title, Savior, was reserved for Roman emperor and Caesar who was called Savior. There's even a statue in Philippi at the time of Paul's writing that said, Caesar is Lord, and we eagerly await our Savior from Rome because he is the one who brings the peace to the people. That was his title, was Savior. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Caesar's not Savior. He might have temporarily brought an end to war by slaughter and vanquish and conquering, no, no, no. Jesus is Savior because he has rescued all of us, not from oppression and invasion and occupation, but from my own sin and death. He is Savior. Well, Paul gives this little greeting to his buddy Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. That's the great common denominator, their confession of the gospel. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, again, our Savior. This is Titus. We don't know a whole lot about Titus. 
He's mentioned in Galatians. We know that he carried what's called the painful letter to the church at Corinth, that he frequently accompanied Paul. We know that of Paul's two protégés, uh, Timothy got circumcised, and when Titus played the hmm-hmm, he didn't go hmm, he went hmm. And so Titus did not get circumcised. He won that one. Timothy lost. I'm not really sure how they made that decision. Anyway, Titus is deposited on Crete. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. At some point, we find out in Corinthians that he goes, or in 2 Timothy, that Titus goes all the way up into what was called Dalmatia, which is today Yugoslavia, on mission work and giving the gospel, comes back to Crete where he died, and you can visit his tomb on the island of Crete today. Why does Paul say this? Paul wants this letter to be read aloud in the church to encourage the church, but also to affirm and encourage Titus and his influence with the church. Let me very briefly read Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. I know this is hard for most of you to believe, but sometimes church gets wonky. I know, just use your sanctified imagination. Sometimes things don't work perfectly in church. Even though we've got guys like Matt McGill and Mike Hall. (laughs) I almost got that out with a straight face. Sometimes things don't work perfectly in church and they need to be put in order because there is a default chaos. That's true. I left you there so that you might put what remained. And you get the idea that like a bomb went off in the church, like relationally. And so Paul says, I'm leaving you there to clean up the pieces and to put it all back together. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is an above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the handbook, you might say, for what God wants influencers to be all about. Some have called this listing in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3 the qualifications for elder or deacon. Some say it's the qualities for elder or deacon. Okay, I like both of those. Here in this list, there are about 15 to 17 things that the Apostle Paul will say. These are the things that are necessary or requisite for an influencer. There's a great mess and a great chaos happening at these churches, apparently, on the island of Crete. And so Paul says, Titus, I want you to organize, bring order, bring in people with your influence that I'm giving to you to influence influencers who will influence the church so that God's idea is accomplished. Now, of all those 15 to 17 things, there are essentially four broad categories that all of these things are boiled down to. This is where you can now go, whoa, 15 to 17, that's too many. But what are these four categories? Number one is general character. All those itemized little things of don't be a brawler, don't be a bully, don't be a drunk, all those kinds of things has to do with general character. You are at least approaching and approximating the character of Christ. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, of course. But you have good, consistent, general character. That's very broad. The second category is laser-focused. It's sexual purity. It's quite literally a one-woman man. 
General character, very broad. Sexual purity, one woman male, very specific, laser focused. The third category, family leadership, that you are properly, godly influencing your family. That means if you have kids that have ever sinned, you're out. No, it doesn't mean that. Not even close. They don't even have to be Mennonites. They just, no, no, no. They have to be seeing you loving Jesus actively and regularly. Okay, so family leadership and influence. The fourth, able to teach and defend sound doctrine. We say this all the time here at our campus. Elders and deacons are very similar in their qualifications or their qualities, but practically we say this, that elders lead with their words and their doctrine. Deacons lead with their works and their doing. So please don't ever, ever, ever think that at this campus our deacons are merely JV and our elders are varsity. No, our elders are almost dead. So that's not it. That's not it at all. We're not just kind of, I'm kidding, big fella. I love, I mock what I fear. You know that. No, no. It is not a junior varsity sort of B team, nothing like that at all. These are biblical offices that we are so thrilled these guys get to wield influence so that God accomplishes his idea. These categories of influence actually sound more like Jesus than any of us, and that's kind of Paul's point. He is our big brother, and we are to emulate and model him, to be aimed at him, even though we still struggle with sin. He did not even though we still struggle with circumstances. He did not. Even though we still struggle with others. This is still the four categories of influence that we are to be about. Now, this is a letter to Titus, but it is to have been read aloud in the church because Paul knows that in the church there must be accountability and a covering. We've all heard recently about large-profile Christian leaders, speakers, pastors, teachers, who have fallen away through a moral failing. And I can just about promise you that in 100% of those occasions, there was a lack of accountability and covering. We don't do that here. We got so many people in our kitchen asking us hard questions, it gets a little old. What time are you going to bed? What are you watching? Why does your breath smell like that? On and on and on. And we have to have that because the church is worth it because God wants to accomplish his idea in and through it. Here's the deal. None of us meet up to that standard on our own. And I'm convinced that one of the greatest siren songs of our enemy, after we studied Galatians a few years ago, one of the great siren songs and lures of our enemy is to try to get us to believe that we can do it on our own. Oh, that's what you want, God? Got it. Great. I'll take it from here. Ugh, you'll be done before you get to Luby's. You won't make it. No, instead, we turn our attention and our gaze at the person of Jesus and that affection, that, that love, that attention wells up and that is what produces in us godliness. The finished work of Jesus and his free offer of righteousness imputed. And so we say this, listen to those qualifications or qualities. We believe that godly influence wields God's word. There's a lot of other things that we could read from, a lot of great magazine articles and books, a lot of other this, that, and the other, but we believe that principally we want to be about the distribution and the dispensation of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and inspired word. Godly influence wields God's word. It is God's word that changes things. We say this all the time. God's word is word act. It doesn't just say a thing. It does a thing. 
Unlike any other communication in human history, the Word of God does a thing. And so the leadership and influence in this church is about rightly handling God's Word and being full of the Spirit to lead His people. So how do we land this plane? How do I give just a quick, super fast batch of about four implications based on the fact that God gives influence to accomplish His idea? Four quick implications. First one goes like this. God uses people to reach people. It's not the way I would do it. I know some people. Mm. But I love them. And God loves people. God loves people who have been influenced by others to then influence others. We say this all the time around here. Most people will trust a Christian long before they trust Christ. Isn't that amazing? God uses people to reach people. Of all the ways God could convey his gospel, he chooses most normatively those who have been rescued by it and therefore those who could get it wrong. (laughs) But God's not in crisis over that. He's not particularly worried about you getting your Roman road a little bit crooked. He's not worried about that. God's not in crisis over that. He wants us to say, I don't know about all that, but this is who I was. This is how I was. This is what influenced me. This is now what influences me. We get to be the givers of that gospel. You're always in a season of using your influence to introduce someone to the gospel, either believer or unbeliever, so someone is also in that position with you. We are to be surrounded by people that are giving us the gospel and to whom we're giving the gospel. I have hope in life everlasting. This is horrible news I just got from my doctor, but I'm unshaken. I have what Paul will call in Philippians 4, a radical, even keelness that produces in me godliness because that's what this world needs. God uses people to reach people. Make no mistake, God does not need us, but it does give him great pleasure and glory when one of his own loves another the way that Jesus would. Second bit, God uses people to create order. Now, don't run past this. This is, a, this is a surprise and a shock. If I was God, praise God, I am not. This is not how I would do things. But God uses people to create order. It's interesting that our Bible starts off with the creation narrative. And the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, hovered over the void and the deep and the chaos. And the Word of the Lord spoke. And there was order from chaos to cosmos. You know, it's interesting. God kind of doesn't do that anymore. It's interesting when the children of Israel go into the promised land, they go and they take Jericho and they march around it and there's a shout and the walls come down and they think, great, this is going to be the most awesome military campaign ever. And then they go a little further. It didn't happen that way again. God uses people to create order. In an astonishing way, God's word still speaks order, cosmos, out of chaos, but he does so through us. What a dignifying privilege. Are you using your influence thus to create order? Or are you using your influence to have sway over your spouse? Yes. Are you using your influence to get ahead in your profession, with your neighbors, with your children, with your parents? Mike, how are you using your influence? God didn't need Titus on Crete, but God chose to use him there to put a mess in order so that Titus would be dignified as resembling and reflecting his creator. 
You see what a blessing that was for Titus? Yes, it was hard work, but Titus gets to be ever increasingly like his creator who spoke into the void and said, let there be. And in a sense, when we do that in our own context, let there be, we are most like our God. So are we doing that? Are we taking advantage of that? Or are we just letting idle words fall out like water from a hose? Yes. Third, influence is about much more than image. Influence is about much more than image. And yes, this is aimed directly at our social media society. No, influence is about much more than image. Our culture is about curating or cultivating an image. Our idea. We're trying to accomplish our idea. So as you know, culture, we say this all the time, culture simply means what most people do most of the time. So... Most people are trying to gain influence, power to change something, by fabricating an image so that somebody will think something good about them. I mean, can you just imagine if Jesus had Instagram? You know, check out the 5,000. But, but, oh, yeah, no. So weird. And I know a great many people who call themselves Christians who love Jesus, read their Bibles, go to church, make casseroles with the tater tots and the whole bit, and yet they seem to be more interested in their image than that of Jesus. That's actually madness. It means our attempt to gain influence means we are the ones being influenced by a process that doesn't actually work at all. You see what happens? I'll tell you, not, not as a pat on my back, far from it, because I know that I got weighed into it with great frequency. I literally have not logged on to social media this calendar year. Free at last, free at last. It's been marvelous. See, we say this often, but I want to remind it because it has to do with influence. You are not who you think you are. You're not who others think you are. You are who you think others think you are. And the sad thing is you actually have no control of what they think of you. And so spinning in this hamster wheel of trying to gain influence is an adventure in missing the point and, in fact, your life. God gives influence to accomplish his idea. Fourthly, influence is about integrity. Let me get this from the second half of our passage this morning. Influence is all about integrity, not image. It's been said that integrity is who you are and what you do when no one is looking. I like that. I think that can be helpful, but the problem is that someone's always looking. And no, I'm not talking about your cable company or Siri or Alexa, although they are too. Not talking about that. There is one who is always watching, but, but, he's not creepy, he's not condemning, he's not judgy, he's not disappointed. He's watching because he's crazy about you. He's absolutely gobsmacked crazy about you, so much so that he sent his only son to experience incredible emptying and disinfluencing so that we might have influence one day. He's always watching. So our character and our ethic and our philosophy of life ever increasingly lining up with Jesus's makes us the kinds of people to whom God will entrust a great deal of influence. One of my heroes in the faith, this old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, died very young. But when that dude preached, it was like a napalm canister in a volcano. He was like amazing. And he would always say this, a man with integrity and the holy hand of God is a horrible weapon. And by horrible, he meant powerful and influential. That's exactly the case. 
God gives influence to accomplish his idea. Who are we? Inside to out. Those are the kinds of people that God gives influence to accomplish his idea. Look at Jesus. We see his life lived. All the influence of the Godhead Trinity laid aside. Why? For our sakes and to accomplish the idea of his father, which is the redemption of humankind who fell away because of their own grasping for influence. And now we get to go and do likewise. Hear and receive the gospel. The kingdom is breaking through. Will you be a part of using the influence that God gives to herald the truth? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opening time together in the little book of Titus. We thank you for the Apostle Paul's writing for the leadership of Titus is all we know about. We hope and pray that he finished well. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who knows maybe some things about you or what they're supposed to know about you, but that they don't know you, you've not received the gospel, they have no hope of life everlasting and therefore no actual godliness. Perhaps, Father, they're still chasing after their own influence to try to somehow attain a little bit more prosperity or joy or happiness or contentedness. Would you invade them with the truth of the gospel? Would you give them eyes to see, minds to comprehend that Jesus is alive and that Messiah has come. Messiah will come again. And in the meantime, he is breaking forth his kingdom in human hearts. Father, would you let them sense your summons that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light to use the influence that you will give them to herald the truth of your gospel. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the opportunities we have to use the influence that you give to accomplish your idea. Thank you for Titus, this Gentile. We don't know much about, but what we know is he was faithful to use the influence that you gave to accomplish your idea. So Father, I pray for this church, for this people, for this community, that you would continue to have your way. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.